Well, as you find your way back to your seat, uh, Vanessa will read for us the passage that uh, the teaching this morning is based upon. So shake a hand and and get your coffee and and have a seat. Thank you. Uh, The scripture for today is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 through 29. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, may be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Vanessa. Since the beginning of summer, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. Uh, a very influential letter, probably the first letter that Paul wrote, probably the first writing that makes up the New Testament. And it was a crucial letter because it addressed a problem in the early church. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, and he would form Gentile churches, that is, churches made out of non-Jewish Christians. But most of the early Christians were Jewish, and some of them would come to these churches in Galatia that Paul had planted, and they would say, it's all well and good what you've heard about Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. But Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And therefore, to be a real Christian, you need to become Jewish. You need to circumcise your sons. You need to follow the law. You need to become culturally Jewish in order to receive the Jewish Messiah. And Paul, in this letter, is passionate about defending the gospel. That is, the good news that you don't need anything else in addition to Jesus. Faith in Jesus Christ alone is what restores our relationship with God, which, after all, is the whole purpose of Christianity. Faith in Christ alone. Don't need anything else. You don't need the law. You don't need to become culturally Jewish. You don't need to add any extra teaching, any extra practice or belief. Christ alone. That's the good news. That's what Paul is after. And so we've looked, as we've gone through this letter, how Paul has been defending this point of view. Last Sunday we looked at the distinction between the covenant that God makes with human beings, Sir Abraham, and the legal relationship he has with the people of Israel, the law given to Mount Sinai. There's a a question that arises, and that's the question that we have right here. Verse 21. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? So when Paul refers to the law here, he's talking about the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai, 
if you look at the uh, first books of the Bible, Genesis describes the covenant that God made with Abraham, the covenant of grace and faith. But then you get to Exodus, the escape of Israel from Egypt, their formation into a holy nation when God gives them the law of Mount Sinai. And so that's what he's talking about here. What is the purpose of that? Why did God go through the effort of giving that law, the Ten Commandments and everything else, if they contradict the promises that God made to Abraham, if they're in opposition to that? Why do we bother with most of the Bible, the Old Testament, which is the story of the, uh, the Jewish people trying to live as a holy nation under the law of God? What is it for? Why should we pay attention to the law? What is its purpose? That's the question right here. And it's a good question. But notice characteristically how Paul answers. As I said, Galatians is a passionate letter. He uses sometimes intemperate language. Its structure is even intemperate. Many of the sentences in the original language Greek are not sentences that just run on outbursts as Paul responds to the challenge. And so here he says, absolutely not. The law does not contradict, is not in opposition to God's promises. For if law, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Does the law contradict God's promises? Absolutely not. However, the law could not achieve what the promises were given for. If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Remember, righteousness just means living rightly before God, living an abundant life in relationship with the Creator. So Paul is saying, if it had been possible to come up with a law, a rule book, a set of etiquettes and behaviors that would have allowed us to live in relationship with God and each other, then God would have done that. He could certainly have done that. But that's not what a relationship with God looks like. Verse 22, but Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. So what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was coming could be revealed. Notice how Paul explains the law. It is entirely negative. The law is a good thing, but it is entirely negative. Locked up and held in custody under the law. Locked up everything that was under the control of sin. The law's purpose is restraint. Not abundant life. The purpose of the law is to restrain Wickedness. 
And you can't understand the law until you understand that distinction. Why did God give Israel the law? To turn them into a holy people. Originally, they were just Hebrew slaves. No society, no structure, no patterns of life other than being a slave. But when God gives Israel the law, they become a holy people, a free people. They become their own nation, God's holy nation. And that was a gift. It was a stepping stone. The law does not tell you how to live, but it tells you where the problems in life are. It tells you what can go wrong. It's like a map of the countryside that tells you where the mines are, the things that can blow up your life, blow up your happiness, blow up your relationships, blow up a community. When God gives Israel the law, he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. Why? Because I'm your creator. You're my creatures. Without me, you cannot live. If you put anything else before me, you're like a scuba diver who takes the oxygen mask away. You're going to die. Keep your relationship with me. It's framed negatively. Don't put anything before me. But the point is to allow Israel to live. You shall not make for yourself an image or an idol in the form of anything on the earth. Don't worship anything except me. You know, the purpose of idols was to have something that you could adore, you could worship, you could give yourself to, and in exchange get a reward. And the world is filled with idols. Think of the idols of today. People who work for money. People who work for fame. People who work for celebrity or power. What are they doing? They're not worshiping God, their creator. They have created something else in his place something they devote their life to. And the problem with doing that is you turn something that is good into something that is demonic. I'm sure all of us know people on Wall Street who work themselves to death chasing after money and have no life because all the hours of every day are dominated by the pursuit of money. The same with people who make an idol of power or celebrity or beauty or anything else. If you don't put God first, if you put something else in between you and him, something more important than him, it'll become an idol, and it'll dominate you, and it'll suck the life out of you. Honor the Sabbath. Why does God say that? Because he needs worship? Because he needs praise and prayers? Because he's got a big ego? No, he's setting people free. The only people who work seven days a week, 24 hours a day, are slaves. That's what the Hebrews were used to. And God says, no. A free people 
should have a day when they don't have to work. A day when they can devote themselves to things other than their work, when they can rest, when they can worship, where they can celebrate life and enjoy each other. The law is there to help people. Why does it say don't murder? Because a society that is filled with murder is a society that is built on vendettas and uh, aggression that goes down from generation to generation, where you can never be safe, where you always have to worry, where you always have to surround yourself with people to protect you in order to be safe. I saw a, a documentary once where this man was describing the tribes he'd studied in Indonesia, some of the, the last remaining uh, primitive tribes. And he said what was striking to him was, in these tribes that lived in the forest, when they encountered each other at random, hunting or traveling, it was always a catastrophe. They never knew if the other person was going to kill them. It was fight or flight. High drama. Because outside their little tribe, they had no status. And who knows what feud or vendetta might be. And he pointed out how remarkable it is that in the city, in our city, we can just walk around peacefully because we have a law. You don't murder. You don't steal. You don't commit adultery. You don't covet. The law is negative, but it is good because it restrains and protects it shows you where the drama and the problems are, where the landmines are, landmines are. It's like a negative map that shows you the dangers so that you can enjoy the freedom. I used to, for a long time, every year, did this for about 15 years, organize a trip every winter, taking uh, people from church sailing down the Caribbean. And you go down there and you charter a boat and before they let you out in the boat, they make sure you can sail and then they show you a map and they show you where all the problems are, where the coral is and where the shallow parts are and where the wrecks are so you don't run aground. And I used to always do that with the, uh, the chart briefing, always have that with the whole crew there until I realized it terrified them. Because all they heard were all the rocks that we could hit and the coral that we could hit and the wrecks we had to avoid and the dangerous shores that didn't have holding ground for the anchor. And this went on for about an hour and a half. And the end of it, they were just filled with so much dread. But of course, the purpose was to free us to enjoy the sailing in that area. By knowing where the problems were, we could enjoy our time together. That's exactly what the law is for. It is a negative freedom. Don't do this. Don't kill each other. Don't steal. Don't chase after each other's spouses. And you will be happier. Your communities will thrive. You will have a better life. And that's why God gives the law. It's a way of restraining and protecting. It's a way of preventing people from being 
as bad as they possibly can be. But of course, they can't tell you how to live. A law can tell you what not to do, tell you what dangers to avoid, but it can't tell you how to live abundant life. It can't tell you, a unique person, how to live in freedom. And by the way, despite what people will say, the Bible rarely tells you how to live. It tells you where the dangers are, where the problems are, but it doesn't tell you what hairstyle to have, or what clothes to wear, or what kind of house to build, or what kind of food to eat, or what kind of job to have. It doesn't tell you who to marry. It doesn't tell you where you should live in the world. It doesn't tell you how many hours you should sleep, or how you should exercise. Think of all the things the Bible does not tell you, which would be great if it did, by the way. The Bible doesn't tell you how to live because that's something for us to discover. That's what freedom means. For each of us uniquely to discover what abundant life is and what it looks like. And that's why you can't give righteousness, living right with God, just through the law. Verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The Lord guarded us, protected us, prepared us, protected and prepared Israel until Christ came. Because Christ is the fulfillment of that law. In the Sermon on the Mount, when he is asked about the law, Jesus says this. This is Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The law was a guardian. It created a holy people, a people that could understand what holiness means, could understand the cost of sin, could understand who God is, who could understand and be ready to receive Jesus. That was the purpose of Israel. To have one nation in the world who would recognize the Messiah when he came. To understand what his sacrifice would mean. To understand how he lived his life. And that's what Jesus did. He alone lived a perfect life under the law. He fulfilled every command. In a sense, he becomes the new man, the new Adam, the one that we're all meant to be like. And he does it perfectly. Why? So that freed from the law, we can begin to live and enjoy each other. 
I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but um, I have a friend, oldest friend in New York. He and I met when he was a single guy in the first small group I was ever in. This was 20 plus years ago. And then he got married. Some people do that. In fact, I did the wedding. And then he started having children. He's got four now. I am actually godfather of the youngest of them, Lucas. And I have watched my friend interact with his children. And I've told him this. We talk about this a lot. It is absolutely miserable. He is a light-hearted, happy man. I've always enjoyed his company. We have a great time together, one-on-one. And then I get invited over to the family house. And he changes from this happy-go-lucky, sweet-tempered, generous, attentive person into a policeman. Don't do this. And why are you hitting her? And have you done your homework? And why aren't you clothed? And have you eaten your food yet? And why don't you come back and help your mom clean up? And it's just, this will go on for hours. And it's just miserable. In fact, I've told him I don't want to do it anymore. And if that is all that being a parent was, who would do it? Goodness. You know, a sociologist once told me at seminary, he was teaching the class, and he said, children threaten civilization because children are barbarians. They have no law. They're not civilized. And left unchecked, they would sweep civilization away. The only thing that stands between civilization and civilization's children are parents. And they've got 16 years or so to civilize those guys. Otherwise, it's all over. There is an aspect of being a parent which is about saying no, limiting what children do in order to protect them from themselves. But that is not life. I've also been sailing, and I've been to the beach, and I've been to the park with this man and his children. Some of you know him. I'm not going to say his name. And it is amazing how different he is outside of the house. When they're just enjoying each other. When they're building sandcastles. When they're just jumping up and down in the waves. When they're looking at all the fabulous things that are in Central Park. When they're enjoying life together. No longer a policeman policing these barbarians, but a father who is celebrating his children and enjoying them and loving them and playing with them and experience life together. That's why Jesus came. It is the switch from law, the negativity of the law, the guardianship of the law, to abundant life. Life together with God because of Jesus. But you have to go through the law first. Martin Luther said this, Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has unrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus.
Not until the law has humbled us, even to hell, will we turn to the gospel to raise us up to heaven. So remember the, the original question. Is the law in opposition to the promises of God? No. Absolutely not, as Paul says. Rather, the law is a stage that Israel and all of us growing up have to go through so that we can be prepared for freedom, so we can be prepared for abundant life. So let's end this passage and look at the last few verses. Paul actually switches here. Up until this point, he's been talking about the Mosaic law, the law given to Israel. But now he switches to Roman law. The Galatians in Turkey were living under Roman law. They would have, they would have understood this. And you'll see when we go on that all of chapter 4 is about this idea of Roman law. Now, unfortunately, it's a little hard to see because of the translation here. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. In the Greek, it doesn't actually say children. There's a perfectly good word for children, tekonos, and it's not used here. What is used here is huios, which is the masculine pronoun, plural, sons. So why was it translated children here? In general, modern translations try to be gender neutral when they translate the Bible. They try to change the pronouns. So when the sex of who's being referred to is indeterminate, rather than say man or women, they would say people or them or they. And where it says him, but is referring potentially to men and women, it would say him and her or them. And most of the time that works. But it doesn't work here. Because Paul is talking about a very specific thing when he talks about sons here. He's talking about sonship. It is a theme that he's going to build on in chapter 4. And it's crucial that we see the power of this word. What is he saying here? So in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. And now there's no, no longer uh, slave or uh, free. There's no longer male or female. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. Why is this important? Because this notion of sonship had a very specific legal meaning under law. It means that you are the son in the family. And the son in the family was the heir to all that the family had. This was true in uh, Israel. It was also true in Rome. The reason was, if you gave your property or your wealth to a daughter, and she went off and married some other, somebody in another family, your wealth or your property would go off with her. And so to keep the family property together, to keep the family name intact, all the property, all the land, typically was given to the first son or the legal son. And it had a specific title. There was a moment in that child's life 
when they switch from being just a son to being the legal son and heir of the family name and the property. And so Paul is saying here, now, in Christ, not just men, boys, could be sons, but men and women could be legal heirs. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There was a specific practice in Roman law. A festival. It was a family festival celebrated March 17th. It was called Liba Alia. And all the first sons would gather together, and on that day they would switch clothes. Typically sons wore, let's see if I can pronounce this, a toga called a pirielius. It was, the son, it was a toga of a Roman citizen male. But when they became the legal heir of the father, when they became the legal heir to the family name and property, they changed and wore another kind of toga, prayer texta. And so they were visible as the legal heir. They were all sons, and now they were going to have, bear the family name. And so what is Paul saying here? Just as the law of Moses had protected and prepared Israel for Christ, and the law protects children as they're growing up and prepares them for adulthood, the law also has the ability to change the status of people. Under Roman law, it was possible for the father, if he didn't have children, to adopt anybody, even a slave, and make them a free man and make them an heir. And that's exactly what Paul is pointing to here. What does Jesus Christ do when he comes into the world? He's God's only son. He has heired all the riches of heaven. He has everything. The Father gives him everything. And he's had it from all eternity. And what does that heir do? He humbles himself. Gets stripped naked is nailed to a cross. And on that cross makes an extraordinary exchange. His life for ours. His relationship with God for our non-relationship with God. His life for our death. And his sonship, that is, his access to all the, all the riches of heaven, all the privileges of his family, that gets switched to us as well. We are adopted into the family of God as full members, as full heirs. Verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promise of Abraham, and as we'll see next time, the promises of of a son adopted into the family. And so Paul, through this passage, is showing us this transition. The law cannot show you how to live. It cannot tell you what abundant life will look like for you. But it can prepare you. 
And through Christ, we can be adopted into all the rights of abundant life. All we have to do is have enough faith to believe that and live out the truth of that. To be in relationship with God constantly in prayer and asking him to deliver those riches, to claim the promises, to live as if we truly bear Christ's name, Christian. And we truly do have access to the Father the way he did. Does the Lord contradict the promises? Absolutely not. But it's not enough. You need to go through it and see through it and see it pointing to Jesus as a fulfillment of the law. And then you can be free. Then we get out from under the law. Then we have access to abundant life. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ you have fulfilled all the demands of the law. There is nothing left. We are free. Lord, show us how to trust that. Show us how to live lives that are abundant and fruitful. Show, Lord, show us, Lord, how to live in relationship with you and with each other. Show us, Lord, how to cherish each moment and value what you have given us and be thankful. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.